birthing, the whole birth experience is a, how do we say this, is, is, is dramatic uh, change of what, reality, change of existence. That's why it's so startling that Jesus chose to use that as the image to describe our initiation into a new kind of connection with God. He called it being born again. And we're going to hear today about uh, one of the most dramatic born-again stories in Christian history. Uh, but before we get that, let me, let me just give a, a kind of high-level summary of the series of conversations that we've been having over the last five weeks. So stay with me here. A central part of what it means to be a Christian is to be ready. Being a Christian means to live in a constant state of readiness. We are at every moment ready to do God's will. We're ready to do that thing that, that's on our hearts to do, or we're ready to alter our direction completely, or we're ready to do that thing that feels almost unthinkable to us. The driving force for that is not what we think or what we feel. The driving force is what God has asked us to do, and we are ready and I would suggest that through the process of learning to be ready and doing what God asks us, through that process, we become truly free. And actually, we become free for the first time. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but our wills are freed by our submission to Christ. Before we knew Christ, we weren't free. We were driven. Most of the time, it felt like we were driving, but we were driven. We were, we were driven by our pleasures or by our insecurity or by our fear or our shame. We were driven by our inadequacies or, or our need to prove ourselves or our need for applause. We, we didn't drive. We built the illusion of freedom, but we weren't free. In Christ, we have been set free, free to be finally who we were designed to be and, and who we really are, free to act and not be driven free to do God's will, and so we stand ready. Now today, we're ending this series of conversations based on of this few epic encounters in the Bible that almost perfectly illustrate that readiness process. In each case, God spoke and the person said, here I am. Today, we're going to hear the story of a man named Ananias who was ready. And because of Ananias' readiness... The life of a young, very talented Jewish leader was dramatically changed. And because of, because of that changed young man, the, the, the course of European history would be altered. I'm talking about the Pharisee Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. Okay, uh, before we jump into it, let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning and for drawing us together. We don't believe we're here by accident. We believe we're here today specifically to hear something from you. And, and so we open our hearts and our minds, we open our ears. We bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And we give you permission to stir us and move us today and to move us uh, further along the course of your will, deeper in connection with your will. We're ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the heart of the story, as I said, is about Ananias, but we can't tell his story without first 
hearing Saul's story. And it, as I said, it's one of the most dramatic conversion stories in, in Christian history. So let's begin at the beginning of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, a couple of comments about context. First, at this point, they weren't even calling themselves or others weren't calling them Christians yet. They were, they were calling themselves part of the way. And uh, this is all happening in and around the city of Damascus. Damascus was a very important trade and cultural center in the first century Middle East. And I want you to see this map. Pete, bring the map up. And you'll see that Damascus is, is there a map in there? Maybe there's not. So imagine it. Yeah, there it is. Thanks, Pete. Uh, wow, you can't see that. Kind of look at, find Syria. And that first flag right under Syria, that's Damascus. It was a beautiful oasis city on the border of a desert. It was well situated along the main trade route between Egypt and Mesopotamia and eventually Rome. Now, Rome began ruling Damascus in about 64 BC, which is almost 100 years before the events that we're talking about in Acts chapter 9. It wasn't part of Israel, but the city had a large Jewish population. Now, it's not known how Christians first reached Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, this account we're looking at now, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Dr. Luke explains to us that there was an aggressive persecution campaign against Christians in Jerusalem in the months and years after Jesus' death, and especially after the Pentecost revival. And that persecution campaign, by the way, was led in part by the Pharisee Saul. And the persecution, this persecution resulted in huge numbers of, of Christians, followers of the way, leaving Jerusalem. Many of them ended up in Damascus. But Ananias seems to have already been in Damascus and was already a follower of Jesus before Saul's persecution. So we don't know how Christians first got there. Now let's continue reading Acts 9, verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Saul. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? That's an interesting note. Obviously, Saul knows that something supernatural, something divine is happening here. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You can imagine what this does to the worldview of the Apostle Paul. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice confirming that something crazy has happened here, but, <clears throat> but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, over the years, three questions about this incident have consistently been asked. How did it happen? Why, why Saul? What was going on in Saul that, that produced this? Secondly, should we take this incident seriously? I mean, literally, the, the way it's written. Uh, and third, how much of this applies to the average believer? Let's do this quickly. First of all, how did it happen? Why, why Saul? 
I mean, what was happening in Saul? What brought Saul to this point? So, prior to, this, to Saul's experience of Jesus here, Dr. Luke has already mentioned him three times, and we get a good idea of what Saul was thinking from those references. The first time he's mentioned was when the Jewish authorities killed Stephen. That's recorded for us in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen was one of the early leaders of the way, one of the early leaders of the church. After that execution, Luke records in chapter 8 verse 1, quote, Saul was there giving his approval to his death. The second time he's mentioned is in chapter 8 verse 3, where Luke told us that, quote, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison, end quote. And by the way, that word destroyed there is only used, that verb is only used one other time in, in the Greek Bible. It's not even in the New Testament. It's in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of Psalm 90. And in that passage, it describes wild boars destroying a vineyard. So the idea seems to be that Paul was like a raging wild animal intent on killing every Christian in view in a wholesale effort to end the movement of Jesus' followers. The third time he's mentioned is what we just read. Luke told us, you remember, quote, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. So let's be clear. Saul was not spiritually curious. He wasn't searching for deeper truth. Saul was not seeking Jesus. Jesus was seeking Saul. The answer to how did this happen is very simple. Jesus chose Saul. And at just the right time, he revealed himself to his chosen one. This, by the way, don't miss this, is exactly what happened to you and me as well. Jesus chose us. That's why the once murderous Saul who became the Apostle Paul, that's why he said what he said to, when he wrote to his friends in Ephesus. He said uh, in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, for in him we were chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And later in that same chapter in verse 11, he says, in him... We were chosen also, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. I love what John Calvin said about Saul's ultimate conversion. Calvin said he observed God's great grace in, in Saul's conversion in two ways. First of all, not only in that such a wolf, quote, not only in that such a wolf was turned into a sheep, but also in that this once wolf assumed the character of a shepherd, end quote. All right, the result of the whole process, by the time we get to the end of Acts 9, is that Saul's heart, his, his mind, his theology, his way of seeing the world, his purpose, they were all changed. There was a dramatic 180-degree turn here. But in order for that to happen, God had to upend Saul's life. Stop, Saul. You've been going this direction. I want you to go this direction. And really, that's what the Bible means when it uses the word repentance. It means to turn and go a completely different direction. What's wild is that when we read the rest of Acts 9, we'll read 
about half of it, if you read the rest of it, you realize that this dramatic change process happened in a matter of weeks, maybe days. I'm reminded of the story of a very successful uh, British slave trader who lived in the mid-1700s and who experienced a similar dramatic turn. This man spent months of his time in his 20s and 30s captaining ships loaded with human cargo in, in heinous conditions, taking them from the coast of Africa to the coasts of England and the Americas, and he made obscene sums of money doing so. But at some point, God spoke into his life, and the slave trade became unthinkable for him. His world his values, his success was all turned on its head. You know, musicologists will tell us that African music from this period of history was mostly based on a pentatonic scale. And a pentatonic scale is uh, the musical scale that can be played on the black keys of the keyboard. It's, it's a bluesy sound. Supposedly, John Newton, that slave trader, on many of his sea voyages, heard suffering and dying Africans singing laments in the bowels of his boat using the pentatonic scale. After Newton had experienced his own conversion, he penned words to that music. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The Apostle Paul, later in his life, could have sung that hymn, I once was a murderous wolf, but now I'm a sheep. I once was filled with hatred, and now I have the heart of a shepherd. Second question that's often asked of this passage is, are we to take the details of this conversion, this story, literally and seriously? Now, there have certainly been alternative explanations of the conversion of Saul over the years. Sunstroke, uh, an epileptic event, event have, have been offered as possibilities for what happened to Saul here. In the 1950s, a psychologist, this is interesting, named Dr. William Sargent, he wrote a book called The Battle for the Mind, and it was about brainwashing and brainwashing techniques and the results of brainwashing. And his research, you know, began like a new field of uh, medical study. He considered, in his book, he considered Paul an example, Saul, an example of brainwashing. Dr. Sargent bases thesis on Pavlov's experiments with dogs and on his own uh, treatment of patients who had, had broken down under extreme wartime and com combat exhaustion. He believed that so something similar had happened to Saul. He thought Saul experienced, and this is a quote, an acute stage of nervous excitement which led to total collapse, hallucinations, and an increased state of suggestibility, end quote. And in this new in, this con con in, in that condition, new beliefs, completely contradictory to those he'd held before, were implanted in him, first by Ananias and then by, quote, the necessary period of indoctrination among the Christians in Damascus. 
We have no argument with Dr. Sargent's research and observations about brainwashing. They've been incredibly helpful. Unfortunately, this happens, and in exactly the ways that, that Dr. Sargent outlined. But there's absolutely no evidence that anything like this happened to Saul. It's a ridiculous conclusion, really. No one was bombarding Saul with information. He was the one doing the bombarding, by the way. No one was exhausting Saul, unless it was Jesus. But then that gets us to the supernatural explanation, doesn't it? We should take this story seriously and very seriously. It's, ex it's extraordinarily hard to give an explanation to the dramatic about-face that happened to Saul apart from just the straightforward testimony that we read in Acts 9. There's, there's no other way to explain what happened to this man. That's the only thing that makes sense. Saul was upended and ultimately changed by a dramatic experience with the supernatural. Third question that's often asked of this passage is, how much of Paul's experience applies to all of us? What if this is universal? Uh, should all of us have a Damascus Road experience? Look, the dramatic supernatural elements in Paul's story are not necessarily universal. This, even, this isn't even how it happened to everyone in the Bible. <clears throat> there certainly are people that have extraordinary experiences with God. Some of you have had. But many of us don't. So the blinding light is not meant to be universal. Nor is the direct contact with the risen Jesus. In fact, that's unique to Saul. God had plans for Saul, and this experience was, was meant to prepare him for what God wanted him to do. So don't think there's something wrong with you if you haven't been blinded and heard the literal voice of Jesus speaking to you. But there are features of Paul's conversion that are applicable to us today. For example, we too can, in fact we must, experience a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. It may not be an audible voice, but it will be an encounter with Jesus. And many of you know what I mean. Also, we must surrender to him in repentance and faith. This is necessary to all of our experience if we are to have a right relationship with God. And each of us will receive God's summons to service of some kind. God has work for you to do. Finally, there's always an element of brokenness for all of us in conversion. And when we connect, reconnect to Christ. And make no mistake, what we see in Saul here is a broken man. I like what one pastor said about this. He said, the raging persecutor had been reduced to shambles. Saul, Saul is shocked and confused. He can't even direct his own steps. Somebody has to lead him by the hand. This is a broken man. But that brokenness was necessary for, for Saul's future. The evangelist... Uh, Old school evangelist Vance Havner once said this, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It's the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter, weeping bitterly, who returns to greater power than ever. Each of us must come to the point where we realize there's got to be more than this. We want more than this. We've made a mess of things. We need help. We need a rescuer, and we have one. So in summary, Saul, who was becoming the Apostle Paul, is stunned and unquestionably altered 
by his experience. And at the same time that that was happening, and now I'm going to read verse 10. And we'll get to Ananias' part in this story. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, here I am, Lord. I'm reminded of what we said last week. Our God speaks personally. So for five weeks now, we've reminded ourselves that there are three words that change everything. I thought that sounded like uh, the title for a romantic comedy, doesn't it? Coming this fall, see Catherine Heigl and James Franco as they learn to say the three words that change everything. (laughs) And look, words like, I love you, or I forgive you, those words are sometimes very impactful, but no three-word phrase can come close to comparing to the impact, to the words, here I am, when that's spoken in response to God's call on the lives of believers. A central part of what it means to be a Christian is to be ready. We are at every moment ready to do God's will. We are ready to do that thing we've had in our hearts to do, or we're ready to alter our course completely, or we're ready to do that thing that seems almost unthinkable. The determining factor is not what we think or what we believe. The determining factor is what God has asked us to do. We are ready to do it. And that makes me think of the difference between Saul's response and Ananias' response. One is the response of someone who needs to be broken and changed. The other is the response of someone who is already in a beautifully broken state of readiness. Here I am. All right, let's read the rest of Ananias' account. And can you do something for me? Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as we read verses 11 through 16. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. I understand that street is still in the city of Damascus today. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You may be seated. So this is interesting in that uh, Ananias expresses some concern about God's instruction to him. And I don't think this represents doubt, and it certainly doesn't represent rejection of God's direction. I think this is clarification. I think this is, this is almost like saying, say what? And, and for good reason, honestly. This, this is not the kind of instruction you want to get wrong. Because Ananias, uh, if he gets this wrong, he's signing his own death warrant. Uh, Then the Lord reiterates, go. And he offers more detail about who Saul is and and what he's to become. And I have to wonder what Ananias must have been thinking. Wait a minute, you mean mean the ultimate Pharisee, the Christian killer, is going to take the story of God's love in Jesus and prove it to the Gentiles? 
Before we leave Ananias' story, I also want you to hear just one more section, the, the, the final paragraph, and we'll wrap up with this. Verses 17 through 19, this section ends like this. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, and, and Saul was a medical doctor, and he uses a medical term here in the Greek, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and uh, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. As I read these uh, verses, I, I was struck by God's great tenderness to Saul here through Ananias. First of all, Ananias laid his hands on Saul, and I can't help but think that this was primarily to let the blind man feel human presence and, and human touch and human comfort. And then, did you notice the first words that the body of Christ spoke to murderous Saul were, Brother Saul. Can the fanatical Pharisee be welcomed into the fellowship of Jesus? Yes, he can. And if he can, anyone can. And with this warm welcome, Saul becomes Paul. He's welcomed into the embrace of Christian community. And a brand new chapter, a brand new chapter in his life and in the life of the church began. And this titanic shift was all facilitated by Ananias' three simple words that change everything. Actually, it was facilitated by Ananias' heart of readiness displayed in those three words, here I am. So what does it mean for you and me to say, here I am today? I, I don't know for you. But if you're thinking of making a big change in your life, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, then saying here I am will mean taking that change to God and waiting for him to answer before you move, before you go. If you're in the midst of a relationship trial or a conflict, then saying here I am may mean stopping to examine yourself. It may mean turning off the critic and the gossip and, and opening yourself up to God's perspective about yourself. Search me, O God, the psalmist said, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's anything offensive in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you've made a mistake or if you've done something wrong in a relationship or, or in, a in some circumstance, saying here I am may mean looking at the consequences of your mistake as an example of God's discipline in your life. Seeing how God is moving and God's hand in this. The author of Hebrews tells us God disciplines those he loves. He doesn't let us get off the hook. He wants us broken before him. That's always a part of real change and growth. What does it mean for you and me today to say, here I am? Uh, listen, this series of conversations, uh, at the very end, it comes with a warning. Before we say, here I am, we need to count the cost 
because sometimes it's costly. Return with me to verse 15 in this passage. If you look back at verse 15, remember what God said in response to Ananias' concern. He tells him to go, and, <coughs> and then he says, Paul is going to be my chosen instrument, carry my name. Then verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. <coughs> Apart from Paul's story, uh, one of my favorite testimonies, one of the most compelling testimonies I've ever heard was from an elderly British missionary named Helen Rosevere. Uh, I first heard this testimony when she delivered it uh, 40 years ago to a huge conference of college students in Kansas City in the United States. She'd served most of her life with, with some of the most resource-limited people in the world in Central Africa through the middle of the 20th century. And then at one point, the country where she was living and serving burst into revolutionary flames. Friends and supporters from Britain begged her to come home. Uh, the, the British government recommended that all of its citizens return home and leave that country, but Rosevere believed that the friends who needed her most remained. So she would as well. At some point, armed thuggish revolutionaries broke into the missionary compound. Rosevere prayed for rescue, but no rescue would come. And through long nights of uncertain entrapment, she was beaten, tortured, and brutally assaulted physically and in the most intimate ways. But in an incredibly delicate and soft British accent, Rosevere reported to thousands of us that were listening to her that her shock and to her shock and amazement, she reported that the whole ordeal, through all of it, all of her fear and all of her concern disappeared. And they gave way to an incredible sense of privilege. That was her word. She felt profound privilege to be able to suffer for the name of Jesus. And God has used her story to capture the hearts of tens of thousands of English-speaking Christians and non-Christians around the world. There are three words that change everything. Always for the better, but not necessarily for the easier nor the more comfortable. But always for the better. Are you ready? I'm going to ask Grace if she would come up and let me close in prayer. And Father... Um, we stand ready this morning, some of us for the first time, ready to do as you ask, everything you ask. Speak to us, your servants are listening. We open ourselves up to your scrutiny, your correction, your discipline. We open ourselves up to increased and growing self-awareness and we open ourselves up to a change in direction. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not ever responded to your voice, I want to pray in Jesus' name that you would speak clearly so that we might hear and give our heart to you fully. Surrender our life to the governorship of Jesus Christ. Recognize 
our willful distance from you, that we have offended you and sinned against you in this morning. We want to go a completely different direction. Thank you.